I just want to welcome you all to uh, House of Learning. This is our monthly initiative at Park Hill Church where we dig into a topic and get into the scriptures and ask what does the gospel have to say to these all-important issues that we face in our lives and the lives of our loved ones. And so today, our September House of Learning is entitled, How Our Church Cares About Sexuality. Before we go any further, I want to pray. I just want to invite the Spirit of God to reveal Jesus. We'd see Jesus rightly and experience the love of the Father that Jesus makes possible through his cross. And so let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to show us what you're like and to die on our behalf for our sins and to rise and bring us into new life, new creation in the family of God. Thank you. Now we, we choose to follow you. We choose to come under your scriptures. We choose to come under the teachings of the apostles. And we pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds to what you would say to your church. Lord, in a time of sexual confusion, we pray that you'd bring clarity. We pray that you'd bring, you'd bring healing in your church and in our bodies, in our relationships, in our minds. Have your way, we pray. That's the ultimate desire that we have. Would you, Jesus, have your way, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so how many of you have been to a house of learning before? Very good. This is definitely one of the more uh, well-attended ones. So again, the topic, how our church cares about sexuality. Why is this our topic? Because Jesus cares about sexuality. That's primarily the reason. So Jesus, if you're here this morning, it was all about this. Jesus is the ultimate authority for followers of Jesus. And as Jesus followers, our highest goal is to live faithfully to him in every area of our lives. And Jesus addresses fewer topics with more clarity than the topic of sex and marriage. And so I'm setting up the night. This is kind of an intro. I set the table for the other speakers. And so this is what we're going to wrap our minds around tonight. We want to know Jesus' heart for marriage and singleness and sex and what's known as the historic Christian sexual ethic. So I wanna make this clear up front, let you know what we're all about. So here it is, the historic Christian sexual ethic. If you've been to our basics class, uh, you know this, we've talked about this. It includes marriage, uh, which is a lifelong covenant whole person bond between one man and one woman for life. And any sexual activity outside or before that marriage is considered sexual immorality. So you think of Peter and his wife. They were married and flourishing and serving God. And then in the sexual ethic of Jesus, you have singleness, which is celibate life, thriving in relationships with God and others, unencumbered by marriage, viewed by the scriptures as equally honorable and sometimes more honorable than married life. We literally worship a single man named Jesus. And half of the New Testament comes to us through the Holy Spirit-inspired filter of another single man, the Apostle Paul. So uh, that's what's known as the historic sexual, sexual ethic of Jesus, or in short, Christian orthodoxy. And so I just, right at the beginning, again, this is, this is the intro. I'm just going to fire off some stuff at you, and then we'll get into some incredible stories from the life of our church. But right here, do you have the QR code? This is kind of our church's, if you snap that, this is our church's 
paper. It's a booklet, PDF booklet uh, on marriage and singleness and sexuality that we have created for our church. Uh, and so that's for you. I was going to read the document for my intro. I was just going to read it, but it would be dry and it'd take a long time. So you guys can read it on your own. It's really important. So it's entitled The Story of Marriage. Um, it's, it's a whole flyover of the Bible that highlights how the marriage of heaven and earth if you look at the beginning of the Bible, heaven and earth get married. God creates heaven and earth, and they come together. And you look at the end of the Bible, and, and they're, they're actually finally, finally getting married at the end of the story of Jesus, heaven and earth. And then in the middle, you see the marriage of Christ and the church. And then in creation, you see male and female getting married, all meant to point to each other through the story of Scripture. And so for 2,000 years, the church has humbly received the teaching of Jesus through his apostles on this topic. And so here's a cornerstone text from Jesus. This is where Jesus quotes Genesis to give his understanding of marriage, uh, which is Christians, <laughs> because we follow Christ. So, so talking to the religious leaders of the day, Jesus says this. He's like, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they become one flesh. He's quoting both Genesis 1 and 2 there together. So they're no longer two, one flesh. So you know that verse. Many of us know that verse, right? So I just want to speak to you, <laughs> Park Hill Church. And if you're here visiting from another church, I just want you to know Park Hill Church, we're passionate about the sexual ethics of Jesus. And at the same time, we all can admit Jesus' marriage and singleness and sex teachings are hard. They're hard for all of us. It is hard to follow Jesus, you guys. And so, it's because the reality is we, we worship, and this is encouraging, beautiful reality. Again, we worship this sexually faithful celibate single man from Nazareth named Jesus. And he says this. He says stuff like this. I have come so that they may have life and life to the full. It's like he's so full of life and vitality that he like has enough to bubble over and give anyone, regardless of status, who trusts in him. And so thankfully, God offers his kids an even greater gift than either marriage or singleness, and that's the gift of his own personal Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. Even greater gift than marriage and singleness is the presence of the Spirit in our lives. And so, as followers of Jesus receive his gift of grace, we're empowered to live out his vision for human flourishing in all our beauty. And we're very diverse. We experience so many different things differently. And so we trust in Jesus as God and Lord and teacher because he said, whoever wants to be my disciple, what do you have to do? This is everybody. Whoever wants to be my disciple, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And that's everybody who wants to follow this Jesus. And we believe he's serious about that. Whether you're single or married, whether you're gay or straight, the call for us is exactly the same. Jesus invites everyone equally to submit all our identities to him, where we repent of our sin done both in our minds and our bodies, and we receive full forgiveness from Jesus, and we all get a brand new identity. A shared identity, beloved children of God. That becomes our primary, most true thing about us. And when that happens, all the other identities you brought to the table, 
they're still, they can still be part of your life. Absolutely. Don't, do not be hidden with that. But they become a distant second to the truest thing about you, which is your belovedness as a child of God. Again, whether you're single or married or gay or straight, none of that defines your core or controls your destiny anymore. Because through faith in Christ, you've received your defining identity as love child of God. So, I just gave a lot to you. I was hopefully very clear as well. Now, we can say amen to that, everything I just said. This is Jesus' heart for marriage and sexuality and singleness, and it's his invitation to everyone equally. So, this brings us to a question for tonight, doesn't it? What about Jesus' heart for people who have been misunderstood and cast aside because of the way they experience their sexuality while desiring to follow Jesus faithfully? We must deal honestly and as a family with that question. Of course, I'm talking about people who seek to follow Jesus while also experiencing same-sex attraction or are gay. And so a few prefatory comments before we hear from the other speakers as I set the table. So prefatory comments. Number one, uh, there might be some terminology tonight that might feel new to you, and that's okay. Maybe you're coming to this conversation from a more conservative place. We're all coming at it from different experiences. Maybe you're coming at this from a more conservative place, and you're like, wait, 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 wait. Is Evan saying gay people belong in the church? Yes, they do. Or, or maybe you're coming from a more progressive place and you're, and, you're, and you're like, wait, this church thinks marriage is exclusively a lifelong covenant between one man and one woman only? Yes, it is. Okay, maybe you're disoriented. That's okay. Listen, however you're coming to this, I invite you to lean in. Ask questions. We are the family of God. All of us equally who trust in him and come to him with our whole lives. And so this is where we're called to step into intentional and loving, curious, humble conversation. Remember, we're submitted to the full authority of the Bible for like all of our life. If you missed this morning, I recommend you hit the podcast. It was all about how weird Christians are in culture for the fact that we submit to this ancient library of documents. But we do. All the way down to our sexuality, we submit to this thing. Uh, as we made clear this morning. So, prefatory comment number two. The first one was, might be some new terms. Uh, comment number two, I used both, if you noticed, some of you noticed, I used both the terms same-sex attracted and gay. I used both those terms. Why? Uh, because, here's basic, basically, here's why. We don't want to be a church that dies on the hill of terms. Uh, we want to die on the hill of faithfulness to Jesus and his teachings Faithfulness to Jesus with our whole minds and our bodies, that's the hill we die on. So while discussions about the terms, like should I, is it okay to use gay? Or is it okay to use same-sex attracted? What do I use? While those discussions can sometimes be fruitful, we believe those discussions can cause unnecessary division in the family of God and needless pain for many non-straight Christians who are simply seeking to walk in obedience to Jesus' radical call to sexual purity and faithfulness. So, whether individuals choose gay or same-sex attracted or even LGBTQ to describe their orientation and the experience of their sexuality, whatever they choose is a matter of wisdom and liberty. 
and should not divide believers who otherwise share a commitment. This is the goal. Who otherwise we share a commitment to the historic Christian teaching about marriage and sexuality. That is the goalpost. And so, uh, comment three. Uh, you're about to hear talks from various individuals from within our own church family who are gay uh, or same-sex attracted, along with, both, along with some of their loved ones are going to join them in, in these moments. And, and I want to be clear, everyone you'll be hearing from tonight chooses to live in conviction and submission to the historic sexual ethic of Jesus, whether in singleness or in a marriage between one man and a woman. So these are some of the more mature, godly Jesus followers I know, you guys. Uh, they're walking unhidden faithfulness to Jesus in ways that I pray the whole church does. Okay, that's maturity. You're going to hear maturity tonight. So first up, uh, I'm just going to show it on the screen. You have the screen of the speakers. There it is. Greg Pikett. He's going to come. He's a pastor in our community. Yeah. Love you, Greg. He's a pastor in our community who's also gay and celibate in obedience to Jesus. He'll be giving a talk on how uh, LGBTQ people living faithfully in Christ are uniquely gifted for mission. So that's his talk. And then, uh, and then a talk from two friends. Stephen Cooper, a married man who's straight and also used to pastor a church here in town, and now he attends Park Hill. Stephen's going to get up here with Paolo Errico. And, and, and Paolo... So Paolo is a member of our church who is also gay and celibate, and the title of their talk will be The Power of Real Relationships Between Straight and LGBTQ People. And then finally, Gabe and Michelle Conover, you guys, uh, they're going to share with us. They're going to share their story with us. Gabe and Michelle are married, have three amazing kids. Gabe's also uh, he also helps lead the community group I'm a part of. Gabe and Michelle are in what's commonly referred to, again, more terms, it's commonly referred to as a mixed orientation marriage, which is a marriage between a man and a woman where one spouse is primarily attracted to the same sex and the other is, is straight or primarily attracted to the opposite sex. The title of their talk is entitled Experiencing God's Grace in Our Marriage in our community. And so each speaker is going to go 20, 25 minutes or so. And after they're done, we're going to take five minute stretch break after the three speakers, the three talks, and we'll come back for a final session where you guys will get to text in your questions and I'll kind of, uh, it's for a Q&A panel and I'll do a bill, I'm not going to lie, I'll do a little bit of filtering on the fly as you text in your questions. But we will try to get to as many as possible. Why are we going to do Q&A? Why are we going to do that interaction? Because we really believe in family conversation. So in that spirit, as I finish my part of the beginning of the night, I want to read the closing we believe statements from our Park Hill marriage document just to set the table. It's, it's like a full page. It'll be on the screen so you can follow with me. Please download the whole document. If you missed the QR code, you can get it in the resources tab on our church website. To be clear and to set the table for tonight, I'll just wrap up by putting these statements on the screen and reading them out loud. Here it is from the last page of the marriage and sexuality booklet. There's several slides. It's a, it's a lot, but not too much. Here we go. 
We realize this booklet may raise all kinds of questions and implications regarding the multifaceted conversations around marriage, singleness, and sexuality. We believe such conversations are best embraced in gritty flesh and blood relationships submitted to the authority of the scriptures and prayer together as God's spirit-driven, diverse yet unified family. For Park Hill Church, this means we're committed to growing as a family of endless grace with the way of Jesus as our primary call to obedience. Next slide. So we believe in agreement with the New Testament that both marriage and singleness are honored and embraced as equally valuable and mutually edifying gifts within the diverse family of Jesus. We believe Jesus calls all of us who follow him, gay or straight, married or single, to a sexual ethic in which sex is reserved for the lifelong covenant of marriage between one man and one woman, what's often called the historic, as opposed to progressive sexual ethic, a one flesh union between two sexually different persons. We believe the way of Jesus is both radically countercultural and beautifully compelling, offering the life-giving alternative to both our sex-obsessed secular culture on one hand and our marriage-obsessed church culture on the other, which are really two sides of the same sex crazy coin. In this way, the Christian church becomes the true family humanity longs for by the power of the Spirit. Next slide. We believe sex is so much more than our hypersexualized culture would have us believe. Sex is not simply a pleasurable recreational activity between consenting adults. We believe in agreement with the scriptures that sex is a whole person connection between a husband and wife to express, confirm, and deepen marital intimacy and covenant love. We believe there's no such thing as casual sex. In fact, sex is so powerful that the only container strong enough to hold its raw nuclear force is marriage, as defined by Jesus and the scriptures. Thus, biblically, there's no such thing as sex outside of marriage. There is only sexual morality. Any sexual activity outside of this covenant of marriage, adultery, divorce, premarital sex, cohabitation, same-sex sexual activity, pornography, etc., violates Jesus' call upon those of us who follow him. And finally, we're coming to the end. We believe that LGBTQ plus individuals are created in the image of God, loved radically by God, with inherent dignity, value, and worth, with great gifts to bring to God's world and to the body of Christ, and that Jesus calls all who follow him to honor and treat them as such. We have several LGBTQ people who are part of our church including one of our pastors. We celebrate their gifts, delight in their humanity, and call them brother and sister. Last slide. We believe in redemption, that God's grace is big enough for all of us to enter, whatever our history and wherever we come from, as we turn from our sin toward faithfulness to Christ. Jesus is the great lover who pursues us and makes us living icons of his hope for the world as we participate in his unbreakable faithfulness, pursuing grace and covenant love toward us as his bride. There's one whistle, that's great. That's wonderful. So amen. And now, without any further delay, uh, family, we get to delight in their gifts as they speak to us and share their lives. So first up, give a warm welcome to Greg Pikin.
Well, hello there. Uh, again, my name is Greg Pikin. I am 43 years old. I am a single, celibate, gay man who has been in ministry in a very uh, uh, conservative, historical, orthodox context for almost 20 years. Um, right now, I'm, I'm also working full time as a, uh, as a therapist who is not only uh, loving that, but is doing marriage and family therapy and certified in sex addiction work. Uh, so I, I'd love to say that I, I'm probably the only uh, uh, single celibate gay pastor sex therapist you'll probably ever meet. And if you can remember that, we're already uh, up to something fun here. Uh, now, I wasn't always this confident to uh, voice all of these things. I, um, I was born and raised in the Los Angeles area, and I grew up in the 80s, which was kind of the era of a lot of fear around this topic. Um, I wasn't even raised in the church, but I still had a lot of negative connotations associated with uh, sexuality, as I, as I remember some of my first times ever hearing the word gay were linked to the AIDS crisis and um, people that were radically uh, um, oppressed or even beaten to death, as you'd hear on the news at those times uh, with hate crimes. And so you can imagine, I'm hearing all of this before I even know what, what the word gay means, but starting to feel like something's different and uh-oh, what do I do with that? Well this, well, this can't be me, right? This doesn't make sense. Like, that's, that's people I see on the news. That's people that live in Hollywood or San Francisco, but that, that, that's not me in my little suburb here. And, um, and I think my parents, uh, again, even though they weren't uh, Christians, they, they were appropriately maybe a little afraid of what could happen to somebody that might identify that way. And so I would hear things from them even about, um, you know, you shouldn't want to choose that because, you know, you might, you might get into trouble if you did. Um, that life is hard. I, in true stereotypical fashion, uh, got very interested in music and dance and theater. And I remember even overhearing a conversation between uh, my dad and mom uh, in the other room one, one night and dad saying, wow, sh should we pull him out of all these things? Because what if he turns out to be gay? And so very quickly I realized, oh, there is nothing safe in this world that would allow me to think that this is a good idea. And then I came to Christ at 18. Yeah, and we only got worse from there because um, I started hearing some things very quickly about what the church believed about sexuality, and they weren't particularly kind things. In fact, the friend that ended up leading me to Christ at the age of 18 about six months later, he came out as gay. I didn't even know that at the time. And he was horrifically rejected by his church. And he ended up moving across the country to kind of flee a little bit of that situation. So you can imagine, I'm seeing this. I'm closeted. I'm saying things to myself like, well, I don't want to have a hard life. I want to fit in. I don't want to get AIDS. I won't even have sex. I don't want to be rejected or unlovable. I just won't say a word, and I didn't. In fact, I didn't until I was 38 years old, about 20 years later. But first, this other funny thing was happening. I must have been a, glut a glutton for punishment because I fell in love with Jesus, and I actually fell in love with church and the community that was surrounding it. 
And despite its flaws and its, and its homophobia, you know, there was still a lot more going on there that was a better situation for me. It was a better family. It was a better community. I felt more loved. I felt more accepted. And so I told myself, if I could just not say anything, if I could just take this thing to the grave, then maybe, just maybe, I might be safe enough to have uh, a seat at the table. That people might actually want to be around me still and love me and I can have a, a semi-normal life. So what did I do? Well, I did what a lot of uh, some of my friends uh, have, have done, which is I, I tried the whole dating women thing um, and, and bless those sweet, godly, wonderful women. I, I, I really did try hard, I swear. Um, but it didn't work. It didn't work for me. Um, and so that didn't work. And I said, oh, what else do I try? Well, I tried becoming a workaholic. That was pretty stressful. I tried diving fully into ministry and service to others, and that was pretty exhausting because I wasn't feeling poured back into. I tried uh, really focusing on hobbies and music and songwriting and doing a lot of things with my creativity, and, and I was still feeling lonely because there was this huge, huge part of me that I couldn't express. I didn't know if people would actually love me if they knew this thing about me, and I also didn't know if anybody else in the whole world had this kind of experience. And so I finally hit this wall, as I said, at age 38, where I was so lonely, so depressed, that I said, either I'm gonna take myself out of this world or I'm gonna take myself out of this closet. Thankfully, I chose out of this closet. But that was not an easy decision, as you can imagine. I had a lot to figure out and I didn't have I didn't really have any role models to know how to do this. And so what I wanted to share a little bit with you is how I came to realize that I could be lovable, I could be loved, I could actually be gifted, I could actually be used by the church, and whoa, what if others could be too? So what did I do first? Well, number one is I had to realize that there was something really important in my life that I needed to know. Can I deeply, meaningfully connect and have intimacy with God, with other people, and even myself in a way that didn't include sex. Is that thing actually possible? Maybe some of you guys have probably wondered that same thing too, right? So what do I do? Well, I kind of set out on this journey to see, is there, first, is there anybody like me? Does anybody else in this whole world identify as gay, but they're, but they're single and celibate and they love Jesus? And I came across this uh, organization that's called Revoice. And um, about five weeks after coming out of the closet, I'm depressed, I'm crying, I'm telling the, my deepest uh, secrets to, to loved ones, and three different people who are part of that crew told me, hey, Greg, have you heard of this thing called Revoice? And what Revoice is, is a conference that's national, and it's full of people that can kind of relate to my story, people that are... Jesus lovers, but are trying to navigate that intersection between faith and sexuality. And so I got my very depressed self onto a plane and I went to the conference and all of a sudden now I'm in this room looking around, seeing all these people who are passionately in love with Jesus, raising their hands in worship, in tears over, over trying to navigate the same kinds of things that I was and trying to figure out how to live a life of faithfulness and that blew my mind because all of a sudden I realized, wow, I'm not alone. There are others like me. I can share and, 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 and know that other people get what it's like to be me. 
and I can be loved for that? Whoa. And then all of a sudden, bing, light bulb moment, right? To be seen, known, and loved for exactly who we are and exactly the situations we've been in. Isn't that the gospel? Isn't that the good news? That the God of the universe could love us, have a plan for our lives, and that it's good and beautiful? I just needed to see that in the context of other people and community. I needed to feel that coming back to me. And so I'm so grateful for that organization because that led me on this journey to realize I could start making friends, I could start making community, I could start making plans for my life that included me being exactly who I was, exactly with my, my, my thoughts, my struggles, my fears, my doubts, all of it. And I could bring that fully to the table and I could know that other people are doing that same thing. In fact, one of the, the key things that we're doing now here at Park Hill is we get a chance to help uh, host a Revoice chapter. Once a month, there are people just like me that get a chance in our local community to be together uh, here in San Diego from different walks of life, different churches, different ages and stages, but we all have this thing in common. And we get a chance to say, hey, what, what's it been like for you? What does it look like to live this out, uh, to live this faith out faithfully in Jesus? We need to know that we're not alone. We need to know that other people get us. And that is so important, regardless of who we are, right? We all need to know other people get us. Um, I will say one more thing on, on that. I, so I, I mentioned I do a lot of work with addiction. And um, that's uh, uh, sex and porn addiction to gambling, uh, do a lot of work with drug and alcohol rehab. And one of the things I love actually so much about addiction work is that we get a chance to get in these groups and they're very raw and very vulnerable and people just lay it all out there. And they're actually some of the best small groups you would ever possibly attend because people are so honest and they're so desiring to know one another in, in the deepest places of their brokenness. And again, the invitation to a group like that in addiction world is to say, is there, is there room for me still in this world? Is there room for me to be loved? And so I'm so grateful that, that I've learned so much from the addiction community too about what it's like to say, can we all be part of this thing where we're honest and vulnerable and raw together as a faith community? Can we learn something from that and say, let's all bring all of ourselves fully to Jesus and support one another in that? That leads me to my second point, um, which is that um, as I've looked at my story, I needed to know that this was not just a community thing, not just a church thing, not just a support group thing. I needed to figure out family. I needed to figure out what does it look like for Greg Pikin to have family if it's not going to be the traditional, uh, you know, husband, wife, 2.3 children, white picket fence sort of, sort of life that I had always heard glorified in church world. What could that mean for me? And so I set out on that journey too. What would, it, what would it look like to meaningfully live this out? I started in scripture and guess what I saw? I saw a Jesus who did life, not in the context of that kind of marriage, but with a number of other single celibate men. And that was his kind of chosen family. 
I saw Paul discuss in great detail uh, in, in the, the words of the New Testament that, you know, marriage, is, that's fine. It's a good concession prize, but, you know, it's really great. It's singleness. I, I poured over church history, and I saw how all throughout history until really the last hundred years in the West, the leaders of church world were single celibate priests who lived in the context of community and monasteries and in church family. And I saw, whoa, the church has always made space for this until very, very recently. So wh why, can't, why can't I seem to find this? And a funny thing happened as I was researching that. I came across this community in Nashville called the Nashville Family of Brothers. And um, they're, they're a group of other <laughs> single celibate gay men living in a house together as monks, if you will. And they do life together and they, they laugh and cry together and they have dinners together and they're bored on the couch watching terrible movies together. And they bless the city of Nashville together and they bless their church family together. But they know who they're coming home to and they know they don't have to be lonely. And I thought about my own story and I thought, oh my gosh, well, I've always gravitated to environments like this. I've always lived in houses where I had like four other roommates with guys that love Jesus or uh, full confession. At one point I was even in a boy band. Oh yeah. Yes. And I loved it. Okay. I realized I was always kind of in love with this idea of doing life in that kind of context or community. And I thought, well, now that I've seen this play out, and I'm kind of sick of the revolving door of roommates, and I don't want that anymore, because that's kind of heartbreaking. I want permanent lived-in family, and I can see that this is actually a thing that's happening. And so that's what we set out to do here in San Diego with, with, with some members of our chosen family, three of whom are here at this table. And we, we wanted to create this idea of what, what the San Diego family of brothers look like. And we're, we're a pretty fabulous little monastery, if I do say so myself. Um, you'll actually get to hear from one of them uh, in just a little bit. But it, but it does beg the question, too, of like, what does it really mean for us to all do family, to do biblical, God-honoring, chosen family, not just as well as, as, as the LGBTQ community, but probably even better? And I've gotten so many examples as I've continued on this journey from, um, I, I've seen a, a straight woman and a, and a lesbian woman who got together to create a family for foster kids together. I've seen uh, a family uh, uh, that's like a nuclear family bring in uh, a single guy who is discerning uh, whether or not to become a Catholic priest recently. I've seen uh, two of my dearest friends back in Los Angeles, the Otts and Hansons, they, uh, they are family to one another insofar as their kids are all brothers and sisters. They are at each other's homes daily. They realize that it really does take a village and they are going to be that committed village to one another. And so it really starts opening up our eyes that this is not just an LGBTQ thing, right? What would all of us with the idea that this could be a gift to every single one of us to broaden our idea of family within the family of God, imagine the good that can come from that. Imagine what that would look like for your life. The third thing I really needed to realize was that 
I wasn't just somebody to, to be loved or lovable, but that I actually had meaning and purpose in my life. I think we all long for that. But what I needed to know was, would God use me uh, despite this thing, or would God use me because of this? I think so much of my work as a therapist is really about integration, where we get a chance to put our, our, all our tears and our pain and our wounds and bring the darkness into the light and then bless others with it. What would it mean for me to then bring my darkness into the light and be a blessing to others with my exact story, my exact pain, my exact tears, and really do what I think scripture tells us is the greatest command and the great commission. What is the greatest command? Love God, love your neighbor as yourself, right? The great commission. Go into all the nations and preach the gospel, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? We want to bring the good news to people. Well, this was a hard one because all I had ever experienced thus far in church world was, well, yeah, we're willing to love some of our neighbors. We're willing to go into some nations. And so what ended up happening is there was this very othered, very oppressed people group that kind of formed out of that called the LGBTQ community. A lot of folks don't even realize that so much of what we know is this kind of community, it even happened because they were trying to escape being oppressed. They were trying to escape being um, hated and victimized. And so they created community with one another because of that. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this should not be, right? Who's, who is better equipped and better understands what it means to love our neighbors than we do? And even if you're still here and at the end of the night you decide, these are still my enemies, well, guess what else Jesus said? Love your enemies. <laughs> there is no reason not to love people. But, but wait, 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 Greg. Ah. Uh, I, I don't know, I still, I still have some questions and uh, yes, all of those questions are good. What do I say if I'm about to say the wrong thing and I'm terrified? Let me tell you, you will say the wrong thing, I promise. And that's okay. Because if your heart is to love people and love your neighbor, then you can really get somewhere. People understand the difference in your motives and they'll want to walk alongside of you. Now, I needed to know again that this was a big part of my life, so I, I, I kind of put the darkness to work, uh, creating some of these, these revoice chapters, um, being a, a light in the, in the LGBTQ community, working with, with uh, other clients that, that share my struggle, um, trying to find ways to equip you guys to understand this, but we all have our different versions of that, right? What I think we really need tonight to know is that we do have permission. If there's anything that is getting in the way of you saying, I don't know if I can actually love my neighbor. I don't know if it's allowed for me to, 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 to go to that wedding or to uh, engage in a conversation with them without outlining the, the entire story of marriage in the Park Hill document. Like, what if we actually prioritized what Jesus said was greatest and we said, I don't know how to do any of that, but you know what? I know how to prioritize love. I know how to prioritize being a neighbor. 
and I'm going to give myself permission to elevate that over the rest of the conversation and trust that God can use me to work the rest out. I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit that if the Holy Spirit says uh, that he wants to bear good fruit in me that looks like judginess and doctrine, hmm, no. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. If I can show up with that, that's going to be compelling. What if we actually trust God that when he said, love your neighbor as yourself, and we trust the Holy Spirit that this is the kind of fruit that he wants us to bear, that that's exactly what we can just trust to do. And the rest, the rest will come as, it, as the Spirit leads. Tonight, I hope that that can be your, your hope, your prayer, that you'll get some of those questions answered, that you can believe that it is possible. It is possible for us to have something greater. Are you wrestling with whether or not you believe that, that you need to be about behavior management? Or are you wrestling with, is there a God that is so good and relationship with him is so great that it's even better than sex. Maybe you're here and you're wrestling with, how do I talk to that family member? How do I talk to that neighbor, that coworker? What if you just trust that you're gonna prioritize love and that's gonna be good enough? What if you're here today and you're wondering, can I be loved still? Can I? finally tell somebody about my story? Or do I have to wait 38 years like Greg did? No. Tonight, I want you to know if you are here, you are safe, you are loved, God has a plan for you, and we want to be here for it. Amen? Uh, well, there's a couple people in my life that I mentioned that, that really support me in that and that I would probably crumble into fetal position without because they, they love me and they love Jesus so well. Uh, one of them is uh, one of those chosen brothers uh, in our brotherhood that I talked about. He's had incredible uh, experiences in uh, doing everything from spiritual direction to, to lay ministry and is uh, one of the, the most godly humans I've ever met. The other one uh, is also one of the godliest humans I've ever met, who we like to say has a resting empathy face and, uh, and a very, very gentle, gentle heart. He does life coaching, he does uh, pastoral ministry, but he mostly sits and listens to us cry and bemoan the world with the most patience you've ever seen. And uh, it's my great joy and honor to bring up Paolo and Stephen. Is this on? Oh, there we go. There we are. There we are. Howdy, Paolo. Hi, how are you? I'm good. <laughs> good. Uh, Greg Pikin, everyone. Thank you all for being here. We know that there are a lot of stories that come with, with you into this room. Um, Paolo and I were asked to talk a little, bit about, a little bit about our friendship. And our hope is to encourage you all 
wherever you're at. If you're gay, if you're straight, if you're out, if you're not, um, we want to tell you a little bit about our friendship and how our friendship started and how our friendship turned into fellowship. Because we feel like that is the road forward for all of us. Like, if you want to know, what do I do next? Friendship and then fellowship. So friendship across the divide between gay and straight, building friendships across that divide, and then allowing those friendships to grow into fellowship where spiritual connection is happening, where encouragement is happening. And so we're going to talk about that, friendship and fellowship. So, Paolo, could you start by talking about how our friendship began? Yeah, I would love to. By the way, Stephen's straight. I'm gay, in case you were discerning. Um, <laughs> happy to do that for you. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I would say our friendship really started about three years ago now. Um, so early 2020, Stephen and, I, Stephen and I met at a Preston Sprinkle conference where I had the pleasure of speaking at. I shared my testimony. That's also where I met Greg Pikin. Um, yes. And um, yeah, we just briefly um, kind of shared some encouragement to each other in that first interaction. And then a few months later, uh, Greg had told me that he had met a few SSA um, LGBTQ folks here in San Diego who were just like us following Christ um, celibately. And so and then I heard Stephen was also a part of that. And I was just like, hold, hold the phone. Why is he there? And so, but I was like, but now I'm curious. <laughs> so Greg and I started making the trek um, from LA to San Diego. And um, it was just a, a, a few of us. It was about five or six of us who were meeting um, regularly. And I came to find out that Stephen actually kind of put this group together um, that was meeting biweekly. And they would just talk and get to know one another and share stories and commonalities. And so, um, yeah, it was just a, a really great joy. Uh, Stephen is a very fun and very vibrant personality. I also call him Stevie, so um, it just feels more, it feels closer. Um, so Stevie was very vibrant and, and very passionate, which I was really drawn to. And like Greg says, we diagnosed him with REF, resting empathy face. Um, so you can literally tell him anything and he'll, you know, the, the eyes will start to go, the, the droopy lip if you want to give him a little... No. Okay. Next time. Just catch him in a corner somewhere and he'll do it. Um, <laughs> um, but that was... So those were some of the things that I was seeing was he was here. Um, he was sitting with our people that, um, that just... He, he just gave us space uh, to be really open and honest. And he wasn't, he wasn't a common voice for us. He really just listened provided some notes whenever it was necessary, but he wasn't a common voice. And uh, yeah, I was just really grateful for it. We had put together, there was a small group of gay men who were pursuing Jesus and singleness in celibacy. And I was able to connect them together and we decided, hey, we, we need to we need to do life together. We need to encourage each other. Like, nobody should be alone in this. And so we began to meet. And after 
after a while, like one of the guys that was part of this group said, hey, there's some, some couple guys coming down from LA. And it was Greg and Paolo. And I thought, oh, wow, it's, it's a long way to drive. You know, it's <laughs> two and a half hours with no traffic and there's never no traffic, you know? <laughs> and so, um, and they were there and we had a great time. It was good to get to know them. At the end of that first night that they came, I said, man, why do y'all want to drive so far to come to this? You know, because they were talking about coming back. And they said, we have nothing like this in Los Angeles. And I was just blown away. I was thinking like, LA is gigantic, right? You're telling me there aren't groups like this all over the place? And they're just like, no, there's nothing like this. And so they kept coming. And I was just, again, I was floored. Like I couldn't believe that what we had was, I just, was as special as it was. And um, you know, Paolo, he was just this incredibly warm and loving presence. And so I chose to lean in and I am so glad I did because um, our friendship is beautiful. Like Paolo is one of these people who he actually asks me how I'm doing um, and partly I'm sure because I'm a pastor, but like nobody ever asks sometimes, you know, how are you doing? You know, because you're always busy asking other people how they're doing. Paolo asks me how I'm doing and he makes sure that, you know, if I deflect the, the, uh, my answer, if I deflect his question, wait, hold on, Stephen, wait, hold on, wait, and how are you doing again? Um, like, I didn't hear you answer that, and, um, and so I just, I feel seen and loved by Paolo, and uh, yeah, that was the beginning of our friendship, so. Yeah. Paolo, for you, what was it like, I guess, we're talking about from going from friendship to fellowship, what was that process like for you? <clears throat> Yeah, so um, before we had met, I had done a bunch of speaking engagements with Preston Sprinkle or doing teachings and, and things like that. So I was already aware that there was a deep need um, for this conversation. But all the pastors that I had met before Stephen were really just wanting to mentor me, really making sure that I was on track, you know. Um, and, and here Stephen was just not doing that. He was just really meeting me where I was at. And um, I think one of the things, one of the gifts that I experience from, by the way, we both have the spiritual gift of crying. Um, so I brought uh, tissues in case. Um, so yeah, one of the things that, one of the gifts that um, Stephen, one of the ways he's really been a gift to me is he has the ability to look me in the eyes, especially when I'm coping with fear and shame and loss. And, oof, see, yep, here it comes. Um, uh, he has the ability to see those things and continue to press in and just give me a ton of space to come undone if that's what I need. And he always just reminds me how lovable I am and how worth being pursued I am, which wasn't a common story that I grew up with, um, grew up with and in. Um, he has been a father to many of us in our group um, just by those things, just the, the intentionality with his listening and his eye contact.
the LGBT community is a very traumatized community. Um, I don't like the fact that it's very easy. You don't have to do a lot to make a big difference. Listening, telling someone that you care about what they're going through, letting people know that, what, that the hurting that they're feeling is, it's like they shouldn't be treated that way. Um, it's not difficult and it's so powerful. Um, I feel like in my friendship with Paolo, I've experienced more of God's fullness. Like I know Jesus better because of Paolo. There are, like, I come from a corner of the church world where we talk a lot about the gospel and justification and adoption as these amazing blessings that come from God, that he loves us just as we are, accepts us sinful as we are, and makes us righteous in Christ. And he just loves us and he likes us, you know, and we, those are amazing blessings. Like they're this crazy reality, it's such good news. And um, my friendship with Paolo, like he makes me feel like that's true about me. Paolo makes space for people. Um, he just, he doesn't, yeah, it's, I just feel loved, accepted, cared for. I feel like I can be myself. I can be honest about the things that aren't going well. Um, and, and Paolo just never makes me feel like I'm at arm's length or that I'm not good enough to be present. Um, I also love, I mean, this is just, it's true about Paolo. I, his commitment to Jesus comes at such an incredible cost. In our day and age, for someone who is gay to say, Jesus, I'm gonna put my sexuality at your feet and I'm gonna trust you with my sexuality and I'm gonna put you ahead of how I feel, like, I think he's a superhero. And his faith and his willingness to talk about his commitment to Jesus publicly so that other people can know that they're not alone, so that other people can know that, hey, there's people that are doing this and it works and it is part of Jesus's abundant life. Like it, just, it makes me proud. It makes me proud to be friends with him. Um, and then one other element that, like, I love the way that Paolo prays. Um, he prays in images, and so when he's praying for me, there are times when he'll say, hey, Jesus, or Stephen, I'm seeing this from Jesus in your life, or this is the image that's coming to me, or it's a scripture, and it just applies the presence of God and the word of God directly to what I'm going through. And so these are just some of the things that Paolo and our friendship has done that helps me as we've gone from friendship to fellowship. Thank you, Stephen. <clears throat> For me, Stephen often models vulnerability. Um, he often models courage, and it shows through his vulnerability. One of the things that I've been so, so grateful for Stephen in is his ability to become vulnerable and honest 
with what he's going through with our community. Um, I think he, again, I, he, he really works through the pastoral facade that I had always thought pastors just had. And he often invites us into things that he is going through, not for the sake of like just, hey, this is what I'm going through, but he, um, I mean, we experienced this a few weeks ago at a Revoice chapter that we had. He really broke, um, I think, a mold for a lot of us in our community. There were probably about 25 of us LGBTQ folks that were in that room, and he initiated just his vulnerability with what he was going through. And this is a married straight person being honest with stuff that he struggles with. And we often put straights and marriage on a pedestal. And here he is being really honest and a pastor. But isn't that what pastors do? They're really honest about how they, how they pastor and how they need to be pastored. And so I, when I experience this from Stephen, I just, I'm so reminded of how much more our greater Father in heaven is willing to step down for us and, and meet us where we're at and so that we could uh, join with him in our sorrows and grief and that he actually is Emmanuel, like he is Emmanuel God with us. And we experience that when we're just really honest. So friendship and fellowship is our experience, and we want to encourage you all, but specifically, I guess we want to close our time. We could say a million things and have in other <laughs> contexts, but can't now. Um, Paolo, how would you encourage the straight people in this room toward friendship and fellowship? Gladly. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I think a huge part, I think it's a two-part. One, for church pastors and church leaders, I think too often when we have these conversations, we come to realize that a lot of pastors and leaders are really fearful of what could happen if they are just, um, if they bring this conversation to the congregation. Um, money goes down, tithing goes down, all the support that the local church gets will go down. And I know those stories, I know those pastors, and I want to acknowledge how hard that is and how scary that is for, for people in your congregation who you lead to suddenly pull away from that. I totally get that. But I want to encourage you that if the gospel truly is for all people, then let's not be ashamed of the gospel. And let's let it be for all people and let it preach. <clears throat> mm, go for it. <laughs> you sure? Yes. Okay. To the straights in the room, I, just a couple things. Like One is realize that when someone tells you that they're gay, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're sexually active. Okay, there are a lot of gay people who are in the church and don't want to be active sexually. They just want to be honest about their experience. They just want to be in an environment where it's okay for them to say, hey, this is just, this is part of my story. 
This is one of the things that I deal with, struggle with, and I want to be in a place where I'm known. And so please just realize that. And then I guess a, a quick word to parents. Um, I've got four kids. I've got permission to share that one of them identifies as LGBT and it is vital for us as parents to understand that so many folks in the LGBT community experience and carry shame because they feel like they're disappointments to their parents. Parents, we need safe places to process our own emotions and our thoughts about our LGBT children, but we cannot put our emotional burdens onto them. You need a place to go that's safe for you. It can't be on them. Um, I started a ministry with, um, with a gay friend who is the son of parents that were trying to figure this out. The two of us, with some others, started a ministry for parents called Refocus Relationships, and it's designed to be that safe place for parents, because I know how difficult it is. Um, can I just encourage you, with your kids, to have a posture of gentle, curious questions? That's your best posture. You don't need to express everything, every disapproving thing, everything you don't agree with, they know what you think. What they don't know is, do you love them? Like really, do you love them for who they are? And so, um, Paolo, for the LGBT folks in the room, how would you encourage them? Um, I think I really need to name that our community has been targeted for way too long, especially when it comes to the church. Um, for way too long, we've been seen as the scapegoats. The LGBTQ people are gonna you know, come in our churches and um, hurt us, so we need to stand strong. And not really being aware of the troubles that are in their own church. So, so using the LGBTQ community as, as the issue. And then our community has run away. And um, I, I want to acknowledge that there's a lot of trauma within our community, but if I can encourage you LGBTQ or SSA folks that are here or that are going to listen, um, there are also pastors and church leaders. Stephen is one of them. Evan and Sandy have done a phenomenal job at this. There are pastors who are willing to stick their neck out on the lines for us. And Um, I, I get choked up because I hear this way too much, that the church has not become a safe place. Um, and that hasn't been my experience, though I've only been a believer for seven years now. Um, but I want to honor our pastors that are here, Stephen, Evan, and Sandy, who consistently are more at the forefront than we are at this conversation fighting for us and validating our needs and our wants and who we are just as people. Um, so thank you um, to you guys. Because of our trauma, 
we get really scared to trust church leaders, and it's understandable. Um, if you are here and you're having that, those feelings of not being able to trust, fear of being betrayed by a church leader or pastor, again, like Greg said, we have a Revoice chapter for that. We can help in discerning and navigating the complexities of what we're, what we're dealing with or going through. Um, you don't have to do this alone. So please um, choose this for yourself and choose this, choose this for your relationship with Jesus. Please. Um, I should have had Paolo end. <laughs> I should have answered that question first. Um, my heart for you, if you're here and you're same-sex attracted or, or you're LGBT, is that you are extraordinary. If you are following Jesus, you are a miracle. And you are, I mean, you're a hero of the faith in our day and age to commit to Jesus today. Like that is who you are and you have so much to offer. Like just your faithfulness. Um, there's, a, there's a phrase in the book of Hebrews. It says it's the power of an indestructible life. That's what you bring to every situation that you enter into. In every relationship, you bring the power of an indestructible life. And it's not that you're perfect. Like, that's the glory of the gospel, is that you don't have to be perfect to be a miracle. <laughs> because he was perfect for you. He was perfect for me. He's the reason any of us could stand and have anything to offer. It's his work in us. It's his work through us that gives us something that we have to share. And you just need to know that, that that's, that power is yours. It's his perfect life through you. It's your faith to him. It's your faith in him. It could be as small as a mustard seed because it doesn't, the size of the faith doesn't matter. What matters is the object of your faith. It's all about Jesus. And if you are connected to him, if you're holding on to him, then you have so much to offer. You have so much compassion. You have so much of your experience of suffering and of uncertainty and of like the trials that you have been through are such an incredible blessing to any Christian environment. And so I just want to encourage you that that's what God sees when he sees you. And you want to make sure that people are safe, but I want to encourage you to step forward into friendship and into fellowship and to know that God has gifted you in a way that he wants to use you to be a blessing to us because we need you. Is it time? You got anything else? We could land the plane. We land the plane? Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, so the folks that are coming next, if you thought we were good, just wait. Gabe and Michelle Conover are going to come and share their story. And the thing that makes them so glorious, like what they're going to share, I don't want to, they're real people 
who are just like, man, it's their realness. It's the fact they're not perfect. They're going to sound amazing. You're going to want to be with them. You're going to want to be like them. And man, but I just, I love them because they're real. And so Gabe, Michelle, please come up and bless us. There's so many of you. Um, so my husband's gay. Um, <laughs> I actually feel like I responded to, responded to this information pretty well because it was breadcrumbed over several years. Um, so at first he was like, I think I might be bisexual. And I was like, you love all the people and you picked me. Fantastic information. Um, <laughs> then a little while later he's like, okay, so I don't think I'm exactly bisexual. I'm definitely attracted to men, uh, but then I think I have this like God-given attraction for you. And I was like, so you're saying I'm special. <laughs> it's great. Um, then a little time passed and he was like, so sometimes I'm actually not totally attracted to you at all. And I was like, oh, cool, 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 that's great. Nice, okay. <laughs> so, hello everyone. Um, we've been very comfortable talking about this for a bit, like within our personal lives. This is actually our first time sharing on a stage. So, hello. There's like a whole, you know, 25 people out there. That's great. Not very many at all, cool. Um, <laughs> so yeah, my name is Gabe. This is Michelle. Um, we've been together since we were 13 years old. There might be a picture there. Siblings are dating. I don't know. Just kidding. Um, we met through a homeschool co-op and got married at the ripe age of 18 years old. That's great. Those two are too young to be married. That's great, too. Um, we've been married for almost 10 years now, and we have three awesome little kids Elijah, Everly, and Leo. They are so cool. Oh my gosh. You've probably seen them like running around here if you come to Park Hill, like causing a lot of trouble and ramming into things. Maybe like running into you on accident even. So um, yeah, so we're not here to share my origin story. We're here to talk about our marriage. We are in what can be called and what, as Evan said, is a mixed orientation marriage, which is a marriage where both partners have a different sexuality. Um, so yeah, anyone heard that term before? Like, no one? Just kidding, like five of you maybe? That's great. It's new for me too. Um, so for those of you who are married, I think we can all agree that we go into this covenant knowing that there are going to be very difficult things we all have to conquer together. For richer, for poor, in sickness and in health. Even if your husband is gay. That's his life, that's his relationship in general. But even though that, even through all that preparation, I don't think either of us could have been prepared for the type of difficulty that we were going to go through. Because the poor girl married a gay boy. And there weren't many books on how to handle this type of situation until recently. Now the typical reaction that we get when we share this information with others, uh, whether we have known them forever or not very long at all, is pity. And I want to share this now before, you know, the rest of our talk is just really don't pity us, okay? Um, I just want to make that really clear. Our marriage is awesome. And in my opinion, you should all be really jealous of us. Because <laughs> this 
just works, okay? <laughs> it's also important for us to assure all of you that this is just our story. It is not every marriage story. It is not every mixed orientation couple's story. It is just ours, and it would be unique regardless of my sexuality. So we both went into our marriage and relationship blind to this reality. In fact, I did not come out to myself until I was about 20 years old, so two years after we got married. And even then, I was not comfortable with it. But I didn't begin to admit the truth to myself until then, let alone to Michelle, which is where the breadcrumbing thing came into play. I was under the illusion that these attractions would just go away once I was married and having sex. Big surprise, it did not. And Michelle was very gracious as I slowly opened up more and more over the years, but I also could tell that it hurt her a lot, which is one of the reasons why it took me so long to be completely honest, because I hate hurting her more than anything in the world. For a lot of our marriage, we felt extremely isolated. And I mean, how do you even begin to find people who can help you when you won't be honest with yourself? We brushed this reality under the rug for a very long time. Um, our marriage is hard, just like all marriages are hard. Um, and I think our marriage doesn't have to feel harder, but it often does just because it isn't talked about. Um, so for many years, we kept this reality really close to home. And when we did start to open up to people, like Gabe said, we were often met with frustration or pity. Um, our marriage kind of makes people upset on both sides of the spectrum. Like, depending who you talk to, one of us is the villain. Um, so like the secular world condemns Gabe, or yeah, or the secular world condemns me um, because I'm trapping Gabe in this marriage that he could never possibly be satisfied in. Um, and then the Christian world condemns Gabe for being open about his sexuality um, and not trying to fix it or hide it. So I feel like Christians would be more comfortable if he were just like wildly obsessed with women uh, or just stop talking about it at all. So yeah, it seems like both sides have this expectation for our marriage that isn't even met in the majority of marriages, straight or mixed orientation marriages. <laughs> It's like Michelle needs to let me pursue my every sexual fantasy or she's keeping me from true happiness or I just need to stop being attracted to men and need to be physically obsessed with her 24-7 in order for her to be truly happy. Our marriage must be a fraud because there is no way that we are both happy in our situation. In other words, people reduce our relationship to sex on both sides because sex equals fulfillment. And on either side, our marriage feels harder, othered, and broken. A few years ago, brushing it under the rug just wasn't cutting it anymore. And we finally laid it all out on the table. All the feelings we had been suppressing, being honest about our reality and our doubts, everything. I entered the biggest depression of my life, and for almost a year, Michelle and I didn't know if we were going to get through it all together. Um, during this time, I remember like scouring the internet for resources. I think I googled, my husband is gay, now what? Um, <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it. It's not super helpful. <laughs> um, I felt really guilty for keeping him in a marriage that I thought could never make him the happiest. Um, like I was keeping him from his best life. <sighs> um, and then I think there was also a lot of grief over him maybe never feeling the way about me that I feel about him. I read book after book about gay Christians, the concept of mixed orientation marriages, um, and then trying to dive into what scripture really says about homosexuality. Um, I think at the time I was looking for confirmation that I wasn't holding Gabe in a doomed marriage. 
um, that a marriage like ours was possible and worthwhile. Um, so I think I was researching, thinking if I found the right answers, I could ensure that he wouldn't leave me. And I also craved answers. I felt like I needed God to come down from heaven, look me dead in the eye, and say, it's okay to be gay. And over the course of our marriage, I went from believing that I was just deeply corrupt and disgusting to being furious at God for having these unrealistic expectations for me to live out. I wanted to believe God was good, but I also wanted more proof. Did he even deserve my love? It felt like it was just easier for others to walk this good Christian walk. I loved Michelle so much, but I also felt like there was a huge part of myself that I was concealing. And how long could I keep that up? I got worried that it was inevitable that one day I would just leave her, that it would get too hard to suppress, so I started wondering if we should just end it now before it gets worse. I feel like at that time it felt like our options were A, get divorced, or B, Gabe just needed to pray hard enough to fix himself. Um, thankfully, with the support of Park Hill, we found secret option C, uh, where we can thrive and be committed and be honest and open, um, and that Gabe didn't need to fix himself for our marriage to work. Um, I think after coming to Park Hill, um, we had like so many questions, they were all typed out, we were like ready for them to just tell us the magic answer. Um, and I think they saw before we did that we needed um, so much more than just theological answers. Um, so they got us connected, connected with other gay Christians. Um, we realized very quickly that we were never probably really looking for answers. Um, we were just looking for community. So more than we needed certain verses explained to us, um, we really just needed to see, be seen and loved and valued. Um, so I had spent a full year while Gabe was in a deep depression just praying that God would reveal himself to Gabe, um, that despite all of his questions, that he would just know he was deeply loved by God, um, that God would feel larger than his doubts. And I think that prayer was hugely answered uh, in the community we found here at Park Hill. Yeah, so things got a lot better when we realized we needed a community. Uh, for me specifically, shared experience. We needed other gay Christians in our lives. We needed more honesty in our lives and to live the hard with others before it stopped being hard. The moment that I allowed other gay Christian people to come into my life and become family was the first time that I knew that I was going to be okay. It finally didn't feel wrong to simply have attractions. I didn't feel as othered. And seeing other people be open about their sexuality yet also be completely and utterly devoted to Jesus Christ was very new to me, um, something I'd not personally experienced. And I also noticed the same patterns of depression and faith crisis that I had in myself, in my non-Christian gay friends. Uh, as a gay person, you think, man, if I could just live out my sexuality without condemnation, I would be fulfilled and happy all the time. But I knew that living out my sexuality was not going to promise that fulfillment. Because all relationships are hard, but here I have someone who wants to fight for me and love me for all that I am, and I just have to let her. So letting go of a life that I had with Michelle and my kids might bring momentary fulfillment in some ways, but there was so much more to lose. And I think seeing Michelle also embrace our community and myself was a game changer for me as well. Once 
once I started to really see that, I knew that we were going to be okay because I finally didn't feel ashamed and I didn't feel like there was any part of myself that I was hiding from her. So over time, Michelle and I became comfortable with sharing this information out loud with friends and family um, because we knew we had a support system to lean on even through the hard conversations. And now we're at a point where, hey, we're at church sharing with all of you people. That's pretty crazy. Um, once there was nothing we were hiding from each other and the rest of the world, we just both felt so much more at peace. And now we're at a point, I already said that, ignore. What my, what my sexuality did was force us into brutal honesty with each other and our community. It was either that or I continued to torture myself and Michelle by holding this truth inside me. Through all this, I think that we learned quicker than most what a really healthy and beautiful marriage looks like. For a long time, I would blame every single one of our fights on the fact that I was gay. Every single one. I could always bring it back to that somehow. If that tells you how like, deep-rooted this problem was for me. Um, it ate me up inside, and I believed at times that if it were just to go away, so would all of our problems. But that wasn't really the problem. The problem is simple. It's that we are two broken human beings. Two broken human beings who need the love and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And isn't that the intention of marriage, to be an example of that sacrifice and unconditional love? Well said. We spent so many years tucking away this information and only dealing with it when there were like really big hurts. Um, and once it all came out in the open and became part of our story, I feel like I just saw such a fullness of joy in Gabe. Um, just that he was bringing him, his full self to the table um, and just not holding anything back. And um, I think another huge source of encouragement was living life with our other married straight friends. Um, just the more they were honest about their marriages and would share things, we'd just be like, oh my gosh, we have all the same issues. That's amazing. <laughs> um, and I think just another confirmation that Gabe being gay didn't cause our problems and him being straight wasn't going to fix them. Um, so, yeah. I think it's been really also comforting to see all the ways that being married to a gay man is deeply healing. Um, I realized over the years just how much joy there is in being loved for who I am down to my soul um, and not just for my body and what it can offer. I think there's something really pure and unconditional. Um, and just after a lifetime of being told how much my body mattered, it was so refreshing to see that I was so much more than that. Um, in the words of Greg Pikin, uh, what a kind God we have who knew that Michelle needed a gay husband. So. <laughs> I wish I could tell my 20-year-old self not to equate um, being deeply loved with being deeply desired. Um, I think I, I wish I could have separated those, just that being chosen and fought for every day is being deeply loved. Um, and a lot of people have told me over the years that they're praying for Gabe's healing. Um, and that's just not something I'm looking for. Uh, Gabe being straight isn't the object of my desire, shocker. Um, it's just him being 100% committed. <laughs> so 
from my first experience sharing my sexuality with Michelle and all the way up until now, Michelle has been my human image of God's unconditional love because she has never once judged me, looked at me with disgust, or tried to change me. She has only embraced me for exactly who I am and is proud to be my wife. The more she convinced me that she loved me as I am, the more I was able to embrace who I was and trust that God loved me for who I am too. Because Michelle was the first person that I ever fully and honestly came out to. This woman, my wife, the person who had the potential to be the most reactive to this information, met me with the love of Jesus. She exemplified how our Savior would embrace the LGBTQ community, his children. At this point, even without faith and conviction, neither of us regret our decision. Neither of us regret our relationship or have any doubts about our future. We have the best marriage, the most incredible family, and this woman is without a doubt the best friend and partner that I could ever have dreamed of. I would choose Michelle over and over and over again. And that is our marriage, everybody. Yay! <laughs> 14 years later. <laughs> My goodness. Wow, tonight was a lot and beautiful, and we have Q&A. So uh, there's a QR code that's gonna go up and then a five minute stretch break. What we're gonna do is have all the speakers up front sitting on chairs in five to 10 minutes, and for the rest of the time until 8 p.m., we're gonna dialogue, we're gonna just ask questions, and um, yeah, I just pray the Holy Spirit leads this time. Q&A, or as we like to say here, Q&R, question and response, because sometimes we just don't have the answers. So questions and responses can be very pastoral and so caring, and I pray that's what this is. I know it will be. So take a five-minute-ish stretch break, and we'll see you back here in a few. You guys, I just want to thank all the speakers for speaking from their hearts, from their lives. Thank you for sharing your lives with us in the way that you have, you guys. Love you guys so much. Um, the next 45, 40-ish minutes or so, the goal is the same. The goal is the theme of the night, to care. How does our church care about sexuality? And so um, I think it's important to keep that at the forefront as we ask these questions, as we vote up these, these questions. Um, these are not just questions. And like Greg, like Pikin alluded to in his talk, these aren't just, this isn't just something we can nail a bunch of doctrines to. This, we absolutely have the truth revealed in Scripture. And these are people. People, like in Preston's famous words, they're people to be loved. Uh, not just issues, but people that you know, people that are your brother and your sister and maybe your child that you love. And so we care. And so uh, I am just gonna, gonna, there's one mic, I guess, for the seats here. Is that all of you? That is. All right, there's one mic. You can pass it around. I'm gonna join you down there. Yeah. So, yeah. 
So you have the questions here. You guys can vote them up with your software. But uh, hi, guys. Sorry we're seated so low, you can't all see us. But that first question, oh, there's a lot of questions that are voted up. So what <laughs> practical, I mean, I imagine if I think of that question pastorally, let's do it. What, what practically helps you in your pursuit of celibacy? Um, I love this question. Sex addiction therapist, come on. Um, yeah, the, the thing that I, I always really, really love about a question like this is that it, it helps us. I think the most helpful thing is, is not a bunch of uh, rules and ways that we can be mad at ourselves or shame ourselves for the attractions or behaviors that we have. Um, what we really need to be doing is getting to the heart of what we really need, which again, is not uh, a bunch of, of, of rules as much as it's true intimacy and connection. And what I've found over, um, over the last few years especially, the more that I've gotten to actually be in community with people that I really love, the more known I am, the more I'm, I'm sharing life, the more I feel uh, like I'm getting lots of hugs and lots of quality time and lots of uh, uh, just people that delight in me. It is amazing how much less I actually struggle with the idea of celibacy or sexual temptation. It's so amazing how much less I experience uh, going off into another world in my brain and fantasy land, or that there's a desire to, to search around Instagram for the perfect life or the perfect partner. I think that applies to all of us, right? Like, we all can hit the pause button on our... our our desires for, for anything and say, what's really going on? What's the real need? And if we can stop shaming ourselves and get to the, the godly need, i.e. connection, friendship, intimacy, whatever the thing is, I think we can get to the root of it. Now, are there some things, practical steps that we can take to kind of get through the beginning stages of that? Of course, absolutely. Um, great resource on this um, that, that we use a lot is it's called Unwanted. Um, uh, it's a, a book by Jay Stringer that is uh, uh, Christian psychologist, and he talks a lot about how we can hit the pause button on shame and get to what is the, the underlying need. <clears throat> yeah, that's really good. I think for me also purpose is really important. Um, I think whenever I've, um, I've really struggled with temptation, whether it's porn or um, another guy, I've really needed to be honest with where I was at and then also just remind myself what my purpose is, whether it's, okay, I'm, I'm here to be a light to the world in this specific area, but also, um, you know, a really big thing for me was always having kids. I always thought I was going to be this amazing dad and have kids and live this fulfilled life. I don't know that God is calling me to, um, to have that specifically for my life, um, but I've been really blessed to be a part of our kids' ministry here at Park Hill and my church in the past where I was um, uh, assistant to our kids' men director for years. And now, that, now I get to step in and be a part of the kids' ministry here and to love your kids and be a part of their process of knowing who Jesus is and becoming better Jesus followers. Um, I think also, like Gabe and Michelle, have been huge and instrumental in not only just celibacy, but just my hope of, of experiencing 
um, the relationship that God has with, with me as a father-son relationship in that they really invite me into their home and play with their kids um, for, like, I, I feel like I'm more there for their kids than them. They're great. They're hilarious. You saw that. But their kids are even better and more precious and hilarious. So I feel like, yeah, I feel like um, kids ha has been a huge um, part of my purpose in, in regaining focus and reorienting me to, um, to Jesus again. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this question has a lot of votes. Can you guys give your thoughts on pride? Not pride like, like gay the, pride? Not pride like the general sin, I imagine, but pride like gay pride. Stephen's very proud of us. I think that pride specifically is one of these issues, it's one of these topics that it really depends on, it's such a multifaceted issue. It's such a multifaceted topic. And what I mean by that is that here, here's my experience is that there's at least two levels, but by saying there's two levels of conversation, um, that's already making it horribly simplistic, okay? At the top level, there are culture-shaping activists in the church and in the world, and they are fighting over the direction of the culture, That's happening at the top level. And then at the bottom level, there are human beings who are struggling. There are people who many are trying to follow Jesus and just want to be honest about this part of their story. It's really important for me to differentiate what level am I engaging in in a particular conversation, because those are two very different conversations, and I think they require something very different from people that are trying to embody the presence of Jesus. When it comes to pride, gay pride, I think from the upper level, I want to be concerned about anyone that is trying to shape the culture whether they're claiming to do it for Jesus' sake or not, we just have to be careful. Like, do you realize that you are, even if you're Christian, you're now trying to put forth a position that is going to force other people to comply with it? That's dangerous, even if you're trying to do it for the sake of Jesus. You just want to be careful. It doesn't mean it's always wrong, but you got to be careful. But operating at that higher level where mostly pol political discussions are, like, there's just a lot of heat there. There's a lot of ability to argue. There's a lot of ability to vilify. And it's really hard, I think, to operate at that higher level conversation. Um, and so, and I think gay pride is one of those things where it's really like a cultural battle that's going on. And I would say that my opinion about that is the same as my opinion about politics, where I think both sides get some things right and both sides get some things idolatrously wrong. So, 
That's the top level. On the bottom level, I would say, and I've learned this from Greg, I think he was the first person to tell me this, that for a lot of LGBT folks, pride isn't the opposite of humility. Pride is the opposite of shame. And so if someone is saying, I would like to celebrate the fact that in Christ, I no longer have to be ashamed that this is how I feel and that I experience these attractions, I would join with someone in celebrating their lack of shame because of Jesus. Yeah, yeah if I can add to that, um, there is history of, um, there is history where the LGBTQ community for years have been shunned, outcasted, um, told to be quiet. I mean, I've done teachings on the literal, like, chronological um, uh, events that happened in order to get to the first Pride celebration ever in New York City. And a lot of it was the Medellin Act. A lot of it was what happened at the Stonewall riots. So there were, there were common events that were happening in, in um, the LGBTQ community where they had to, if, uh, gosh, this just, it's just so much. Yeah, it's just so much. But I think in order to understand what pride is, like, yes, exactly what Stephen had said. It is us as a community saying we no longer have to hide and we're not, fo- we're not fighting for our sexuality to be exposed. We're actually fighting for the, um, for the decency to be, um, uh, to have dignity in this world because there were systems, there were, um, even the, the DSM-5, if you know, it's a diagnostic of mental health um, in the 1970s, I think it was the 1970s, they finally saw homosexuality as not, as not being a mental illness. That wasn't too long ago. That's yeah. pretty recent. And even before that, at the Stonewall riots, like men and women had to expose themselves to police officers in order to be identified as male or female. And how undignifying is that for just being at a bar, just wanting to get a drink with friends, um, there are many people who weren't able to work in government-funded locations because of the thought that they were LGBTQ, and they were fired on the spot. So we're not saying, look at our sexuality. We're saying, please notice that we are human. Just notice us. That's what pride is about. Thanks, Paolo. Yeah, so this, this question has a lot of votes. They're getting higher and higher. So, is there any room for different interpretation of Scripture when it comes to same-sex marriage? How can you differentiate it being a core ethic versus not? That language comes from our basics class. If you have been through our basics class at Park Hill, we require everyone who wants to join a community group to go through and get clear clarity on what we believe as a church. We believe clear is kind, and the last thing we want is for anyone to join a community and then like 18 months down the road find out, oh, you guys won't marry me and my same-sex partner? You guys didn't even tell me. You just said all are welcome. So we actually want to be clear 
up front before someone commits their life into covenant community. And so, in that basics class, we define historic marriage as a core ethic of what it means to be part of the Christian faith. And so, carrying on, this question, this questioner, uh, kind of wants to compare it to women in leadership not being a core ethic when Scripture seems clear that women should not be in leadership. So if that can be interpreted differently, why can't same-sex marriage be interpreted differently? Um, I don't want, necessarily want to answer that. But I, I, feel like that, I feel like that's mine. Uh, I feel like that's a question for me. I don't know why. I feel targeted. But so... So I think it's important to recognize what uh, historic Christianity uh, kind of is. So orthodoxy is this paper trail for 2,000 years of Christians reading the Bible. We actually have the paper trail. It's pretty awesome. Uh, actually, one of our elders got his degree, Matt Persley got his degree in historical theology, which is not just the translation of the Bible for 2,000 years, but the readings of the Bible by the whole church, Catholic. C, little c, the whole universal church reading the Bible for 2,000 years. We have, we have the receipts, which is amazing. And uh, in those receipts, we do not have like a unified witness, women never taught. We actually see tons of women teaching. We see women leading things. We see women acting as shepherds, starting house churches. Actually, Nympha in the book of Galatians started, started a church in her house that Paul wrote Galatians to to say hi. Say hi to Nympha. Uh, so... So we actually have a long tradition that many scholars for a long time have not been 100% sure on. And I remember hearing Patrick Schreiner, who's an amazing scholar on the no women teacher side of the conversation. His dad basically created complementarian theology as it is today in partnership with some other guys at, in, in the you know, Southern Baptist College, university, whatever, over there in Lexington. and and. And Patrick said, honestly, Evan, the best scholars on both sides of the women in leadership debate can only be 80% certain that they're right. They'll admit that, the best scholars on either side of the debate. Everything I just said about women in ministry cannot be said about marriage. Through church history, through orthodoxy, and up until the sexual revolution of the 60s, coincidentally, there was unanimous teaching uh, all the way down in every culture and every context and every language on what marriage fundamentally is, defined as a lifelong covenant bond between two sexually opposite persons. Now there's some pretty bad marriages in the Bible, some pretty horrific arrangements like Solomon and his 700 wives, and those, that was like a weird polygamous situation. Um, but yeah, so and I like what Preston Sprinkle says about that. When we, when we, and a little bit off the topic right now, but when we see a bad example of a marriage in the Bible, we can't confuse what is with what ought to be. That's how to read the Bible well. So don't confuse the is with the ought. God shows us a lot of junk, especially in the Old Testament, uh, of, of things that God just kind of doesn't comment on, and the narrative plays out poorly for all of those polygamous marriages. So all that to say, you have women in leadership as one topic, and then you have the marriage conversation, and they're not even in the same ballpark as far as historic orthodoxy and scholarship today. Um, so we submit to not just scripture, but, but church 
on that, um, the historic witness of the church. And that, hopefully that helps answer a lot of questions that are asked that you guys sent in about, you know, you know, what do you think about pastors who disagree with that and all of that? We just would, would disagree. So, uh, n- hopefully that's sufficient. Um, move that to, this is a new software. Let's see, move to archive. Yes. So, um, you guys, can you answer, what about people in the LGBTQ community who, there's two questions, I'd like to, you to answer two. People who are in the LGBTQ community who choose to be in a same-sex relationship and are people of faith, how do you approach that? And then maybe you could also answer, what about a same-sex couple that comes to faith? How do you include them? Because uh, those, those both are asked in our list. Me? Okay. <laughs> uh, you know, I am a huge believer in, in again, putting relationship with Jesus and an understanding of his heart and his character way, 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 way before we try to manage anybody's behavior, their relationships, their merit, any of that. We don't start with behavior. We always start with who is Jesus? Who do we believe him to be? And we even trust that within that, that if somebody comes to faith in Jesus, that the Holy Spirit's going to work in their life. And that's going to be a process too. And guess what? When they have seen not only so many bad marriages in the Bible, but let's be honest, in the church too, they're probably going to be a little bit distrusting in what they're experiencing, even sometimes amongst a really uh, God-honoring and healthy community. Um, And they're going to have questions, and they're going to be figuring things out, and maybe that's actually okay. And I think if if you think about how many other things that we allow for sometimes in the context of our groups and our churches that people are still figuring out. We, when we start getting into it, even with the, with the straight folks, right? Like how many folks are we in relationship with that, that don't believe in, in uh, for example, uh, waiting till marriage to have sex? How many times do we see people within church worlds getting divorced, getting remarried, doing that again? How many times do we see affairs, adultery, sex and porn addict, all of it, right? All of us as a church probably have some way of acknowledging that there is brokenness and hurting everywhere. What we want to make sure is that we're consistent across the board and that we're not singling out a whole people group as, look at those sinners, but we're all fine to do whatever we want, right? We've, we've all got a lot to look at. And, you know, when the finger's pointing, we've got three more pointing back at us, right? I want to kick it over to the Conovers. Come on, Gabe and Michelle. You guys are awfully quiet over there. I, so this one might be extremely relevant. If you can't answer, if you, whatever, if, if you can't, well, no worries. How do you explain this type of sexuality to a child while being accepting but also explaining the details about how an LGBTQ Christian relationship looks like? And if you want to just punt and be like, I don't know, we're working on it, no worries. Um, this is kind of an ever-evolving conversation with our kids. They're eight, five, and three, so it's still new for us. Um, But I think the biggest thing, our kids know gay people exist. Um, And I think we've just been really big on like, we're all doing our best to serve Jesus with everything we have, and we're gonna do that imperfectly. Um, But it's our job to love people as Jesus loves them is kind of what we've 
honed in on so far. I think our next step is to have Greg and Paolo come out to our kids and see how they react to that. And then we'll be like, cool, 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 dad too. Good. Um, one of your parents is gay. Which one? Take a guess. It'll be like a game show. We're really excited. Um, but I think just trying to, like you were saying, not like making it consistent across the board, kind of not singling that out, but just teaching our kids to be overall empathetic. Um, yes. I think, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I was just going to say what you just ended with is creating a foundation of empathy in, in your children. Like that, that is what I feel is lacking in a lot of Christian homes, which is why a lot of children are speaking out of line because of the things that they're hearing from their parents. So if we can, as parents, exemplify the love of Jesus, exemplify his grace and his mercy and his empathy towards his children, um, whether they are following him or not, he has the same empathy and love. Um, but a, if we can exemplify that first, then it will make those conversations much easier because they will know my first, my first reaction in how to embrace the LGBTQ community should be love because that's how I embrace everyone. And this is no different. Thanks, guys. Um, this question is a common one, I think, in these forums. Uh, and it's the idea of sanctification, um, what, is, what does transformation look like in this conversation? There was a lot of talk about having people accept them as they were and, quote, didn't ask them to change, unquote. How does this work with Christ inviting change? Is homosexuality, uh, which to me is not descriptive enough, but uh, is homosexuality different than different sin struggles such as alcoholism? So they're basically saying, how do you, how do you conceive of sanctification uh, in a way that might be helpful to this group for processing? That's a hard one. <laughs> Me? Yeah. Okay. Uh, grace, grace. Um, I, I think this assumes that homosexuality is a sin. Again? Okay, I think this assumes that homosexuality is a sin. So like me here now, I'm being sinful, is what that question assumes. Um, I don't think I'm doing anything sinful currently, um, last I checked. And so I think like alcoholism, I don't see how those two go together, but I understand what you're asking. Um, hmm. I have fully submitted my life and my identity in Christ, first and foremost. What he chooses to do in me, I'll submit to. Um, I think I have experienced my relationship with Jesus grow more fully when I have just accepted um, that him changing my orientation might not happen. And I get to see fruit in that through experiences in my community, in my church, even loved ones that aren't believers. Um, a lot of people, I mean, I, I have a very close friend who's not a believer, and she has walked with me through coming out, through accepting Christ, through figuring out celibacy and singleness, and she's like, no way, you do not have to be celibate and single. That is wild. And I was like, I know, but here we are. 
and I, I experience fruit even in my and, and her relationship in that she really sees a difference in me compared to all of our other LGBTQ friends that aren't believers. And so I think, I, yeah, I don't know what else to say about that. Real quick, I, yeah, I just wanted to say like, yeah, that this goes back to I think what, what you were saying, or what you were saying actually about just because you hear the word gay doesn't mean somebody's doing something. They're, they're, they're trying to share an, a common experience. And so by having that, sometimes even as an identity, so to speak, cap, a lowercase i rather than the capital I identity of Christ and being in Christ, it does allow people to help uh, find each other, right? For example, I wouldn't have found any of these people, I wouldn't have found my community, I wouldn't have found my church had I not been able to identify a certain way because guess what? They would have all been hidden and I would have continued to feel alone. Um, now, typically when people use the term alcoholic, that implies that they have been uh, involved in an addictive behavior. They might have uh, just some predisposition, although usually they're not probably attending AA meetings or whatever the case may be, but in the same way, if they identify as an alcoholic or one who struggles with alcoholic tendencies, as the case may be, they still are able to find AA and they're finding recovery, they're finding support groups. We need to be allowed to talk about our shared experiences, our common experiences, so that we can find people that can help us to grow in those experiences together. That's why this identity thing becomes so important. I'd like to add that in my own experience, I've sinned in lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of different ways. I've repented of all of my sins. And as sin comes up in my life, and it does regularly in lots of different ways, I continue to repent of my sins and I ask God to forgive me, and I claim his promise that he, when I confess, 1 John 1, 9, he not only forgives my sin, but then cleanses me from the unrighteousness that produced the sin in the first place. And my hope is that I'm growing to become internally less desiring of sin, less sinful, and more full where Jesus is the only thing that I really want. Like, that's the direction of my life. And what I have learned is that in all of the different ways that I've sinned in my life, some of those sins seem to have gone away. Like, I'm not, some of the sins, like, I don't do that anymore. And then there's some sins that no matter how hard I try, no matter how many times I repent, no matter how much accountability, no matter how many blocks, no matter how many efforts I make to try to build barriers between me and committing the sin, it just doesn't seem to go away. If any part of your experience is like me, then let that help you know the answer to this question. Yeah, I really love your pastoral heart, you guys, so much. And sometimes these Q&A, especially after hearing from your lives and from your hearts, sometimes Q&A can feel like just kind of pop trivia and, and it can 
can kind of mess with the vibe. But I actually think these, th this is, all of us are on different spots in this. In this. And, and you also, who ask these questions, need to know that this is the place for these questions. So the clunky wording and, and like, oh, like, I think you already said it. Like, oh my gosh, am I, you said it, Greg. <laughs> am I going to say something incredibly offensive that makes one of these guys cry themselves to sleep tonight or something? Like, this is the place for that. So, um, well, wait, Evan. I Evan, just spoke Evan, for them. Evan, can I say something real but, quick? But I'm feeling it too. I'm just feeling for you guys right now. Yeah, um, I kind of wanted to add something to my question about pride because um, I've been sitting here thinking, Stephen, you idiot. Like, why did you say it like that? Like, why didn't you? Say and so, can I add something to my answer? Um, <laughs> I do think that there is in the culture an anti Christian wanting to remove Jesus and every vestige of who he is from our culture. That is not Christian, that is anti-Christian, and I think we should be opposed to any and all efforts to try to remove Jesus from our world. Now, how we do that is a very complicated question. How we engage in that spiritual battle with the spiritual armor that God provides to us, with the spiritual truth that is the sword of the Spirit that we're to use to preach the gospel and to love people. Like, it doesn't mean that we never fight, but how we fight ought to be characterized by the death and resurrection of Jesus. But I, I just, I didn't want to make it sound like that there wasn't something to be very concerned about in the anti-Christian culture that wants to remove the church from the world. So, thanks. Hi. Just to add to what he said, which is very valid, I also feel if you have gone to Pride, it is very noticeable that there are people who carry signs that says God hates fags, that says um, really unfortunate things towards the LGBTQ community. Um, yes, definitely stand ground when it's necessary. I think also don't hinder people from experiencing Jesus because having signs saying God hates fags is also not the right way. Yeah. I assure you, it is not the way to go. Um, we've, we've often talked about if our community stepped into, and this is just really honest, like we've talked about if we step into uh, a Pride Month celebration in Hillcrest or wherever, how do we now become people who entice curiosity in the LGBTQ community to experience Jesus. And there are organizations out there that do this really well. There's a kaleidoscope um, organization in New York who does this really well. And they have videos upon videos of young men and women or trans folks who actually ask, who is Jesus? And don't we want to be a people that do that? Mm -hmm. And if you don't, why? Mm. Yeah. Um, very practically, I know, I mean, I, I know a lot of people in our church that have asked this very question at the top of the list because they're invited to same-sex weddings in their families. This is very near and dear to many of our immediate concerns. And, and we want 
we want to stand for, we want to like be clear and let everyone know what we think, and yet we want to never lose a relationship. So, um, pastorally, what are your thoughts on attending a same-sex wedding? <laughs> Please go. Honestly, that's my, that's my, that's my, that's my response. And this is me talking you know, I'm not going to say, thus saith the Lord, where the Lord don't saith, but the idea that, again, this goes back to that, how can I prioritize love? And I don't know how you re-engage in the conversation about, about love when we're too terrified to show up for people. And what does that communicate about a God that, that, would send Jesus into the world where, you know, he was living life amongst the sinners and the tax collectors. And um, I, I once heard um, uh, Andy Stanley, a very famous uh, megachurch pastor, say, um, Jesus, we're, we're worried about uh, guilt by association. He never would have come. And I think we need to be really, really thoughtful about, about presence more than more than we need to be thoughtful about. Oh my gosh! If I if I show up at this one thing, what does it say about my doctrine and that? Right? It just mm -hmm. love thy neighbor. Yeah, I uh, yeah. This is something that that Sandy and I have thought through just in various situations in life. And um, yeah, I mean, it's what we say at every basics, right? Clear is kind. And unclear is unkind. And once that loved one knows what we think, we show up for them for the rest of their life. Um, obviously, if showing up makes something confusing happen, make sure that that's clarified and then be there. That's, our, that's, that's kind of where we're at. Um, yeah, and the question is, what does your appearance or non-appearance communicate? And, and, and I think your appearance can communicate love as long as you're, you're clear. Like, here's, you know me, I know you, you invited me to the wedding, I love you, you love me, you, here's, remember, here's, here's where I stand, now that we're clear, can we move on, can, I'll show up for you. Um, so that, that's, that's, that's kind of it. One, one line I heard from, I think, I think Preston, his name has come up a lot tonight, this is kind of his specialty, this whole conversation, he's given his life to it. And he puts it this way, um, would your non-presence communicate that you just wanted to be right for a day and, and sacrifice decades of table fellowship, maybe? So um, I think that's helpful. So, so. I have something to add to the last. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> looking at me like that. Um, sometimes I think that we as Christians um, are so quick to want to make sure that everyone knows exactly what we think about everything. And that, that can be very, um, it, it makes, it is why, I think that specifically is why uh, the LGBTQ community is so afraid of the church and so um, hostile towards the church is because they have felt the same hostility towards them. So when it, I think about this with same-sex weddings because I used to be a wedding photographer and I have shot many a same-sex wedding. Um, I like to think of it from a perspective of like, like Evan was saying, what good will me saying I don't agree with this 
thus I am not going, do for the kingdom of God in this situation? I, I, I feel like, put yourself in their shoes, like, do you think that they're sitting there going like, oh, you know what, now that, now that I think about it, that makes sense. No, it's not, it's not gonna go that way. <laughs> yeah. but, but you showing up for them and just being an example of Jesus in general, whether like at, at their wedding and in their lives outside of their wedding is, that is what convicts people. That is what shows people that Jesus really loves them. That's all I have to say. The, these issues are all very complicated. And listening to some of the questions, I can imagine that the scenario that you wrote the questions in, in your mind, it's like it's really kind of clear to you maybe where, what you should do. And then you might hear us say something different. And it's because when we hear the scenario that's being described, we think of, we connect it to something different. Um, and I just, I want to name that, that it's really difficult to be able to say, oh yeah, we know exactly what you should do in the situation that you're in when we don't know the situation that you're in. And this is one of these very nuanced and multifaceted because there's, there's a lot of things that we're trying to hold at the same time, right? We're trying to hold the fact that we love God and we want to put him first, that if God is true, every person could be a liar, you know, that we're going to side with Jesus and his truth over and against anything else that the world has to offer in contradiction. Um, we have relationships that we want to maintain, and yet we want to let people know that Jesus is inviting them out of their life into his kingdom, and there's some death that needs to happen in order for there to be a resurrection into the kingdom of God. It's really hard to hold all these things at the same time, and so one of the things that I try to do is I try to imagine that there's a personal God behind every verse in the scriptures. There's a person who inspired those verses and there's a face that, that, that God has and I want to try to see his face and when I see his face, verses like Romans 2, 4 make more sense to me. It says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And there's something about, like, I just, I don't know anybody who is attracted to someone who is angry, who would be drawn to come near to someone who is angry. And so I try to figure out, okay, God, how can I communicate your loving kindness to this person, even if I disagree with them, even if I think they're making bad decisions? And that's one of the things that for me is kind of an overarching person of God embodying reality that I try, that, that ends up being kind of near the top of my list of things as we prioritize them. Like I try to have God's kindness because if that's what leads people to repent, then I want to make sure that I do that well. Um, and that even as I'm communicating truth and an invitation to repent and to follow Jesus, that it's coming from a disposition and a posture on my part that is showing kindness, that God actually loves you and likes you. Beautiful. You guys can just thank our panelists, thank our speakers, just their whole lives.
I just thank you for sharing just the depths of your intimate lives with us tonight. And uh, church, everybody, we're here for this conversation. This isn't a one-off and see you later. This is like feel free to process in, com- in your community groups. Process with us as an elder team. We have a pastoral care team that would love to talk with you if you want phone calls and uh, maybe a group coffee meeting here and there where you can be like, what just happened? That was beautiful and I'm so confused or something. Uh, like that's, we're here for you, we're here for that. And really ultimately it comes back to this beautiful call. The Father has sent, He's, he's all about sending. He sent His Son and then the Father and the Son breathed out this sent person called the Holy Spirit to create a new family out of every nation, tribe, and tongue, a diverse yet unified family. And part of what happened when the Spirit was breathed and the church was born is that a whole room of people started speaking in languages that each other could understand. And, and so uh, we want the Spirit to give us gifts of understanding. And, and gifts of listening. Oh, I hear. I understand what Jesus is doing in your life. I understand what Jesus is doing in your marriage. And, and we could grow together to be a church that's flourishing uh, for people who are single and married and sexual minorities, like the word is called, where your, your experience is not the same as the majority around you. And, and straight folks. And together, we actually, when we are unhidden, when we are unhidden and bring our, it's really, I heard recently someone likened coming out to a form of, form of repentance because you name the reality of what you're bringing to Jesus. And, and so we all do this. We all bring our true uh, full life to Jesus where he then, he then replaces all of our secondary identities with belovedness. And so that's, that's what the goal is. The Holy Spirit, help us. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you help us in this as we continue to move toward Christ's image, not our own image, not the image of each other, but, but the image of God the Son revealed in the person, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. Lord, we want to follow Jesus. We want to follow you. And so that's what this is all for, uh, to be with you. And then to become like you more and more. And then to do what you did to those that are the least of these, you said. So help us in that, we pray. And, and help us <laughs> to have both compassion and courage, uh, grace and truth. And help us to hear your voice above our own. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen, church. Uh, thanks for coming out.